0: lead others, and never surrender. It is time to begin Seeking Excellence.
1: What is going on, everybody? This is Nathan Craigfield. Welcome to Seeking Excellence Podcast. Today, I'm super blessed to be joined uh, by my new friend. Uh, We have our our, uh, mutual friend, Carrie Gress. Uh, but Noelle Maring, thank you so much for coming on with me today.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, super pumped. Emily is always jealous. She was jealous when I got to talk to Carrie. She's jealous I get to talk to you because she has like 16 copies of Theology of Home. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> it's been like ever since we got engaged, it's like everybody's gift to her. has been Theology <laughs> of Home because they knew she'd love it. Uh, I love
2: hearing that.
1: Yeah, which is really cool. And we read Anti-Mary Exposed in June. We do like a little book club together, Her, she and I uh do that and so yeah so that was really fun carrie um i think it was off the podcast so for those who don't know carrie actually recommended that i read noelle's book after doing the podcast with her you well, you were gracious enough to send me a copy of awake not woke absolutely loved it as soon as i read the title and the subtitle i was like this is gonna be my jam so <laughs> i was a huge fan for sure uh, but first you know i have a lot of great things i want to talk about and ask you about um but first i would just love for you to be able to introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit
2: Sure. I'm Noelle Mearing, as you said. I'm wife to my husband, Adam, who was my college sweetheart. We have six children. We live in Southern California. We actually met at an evangelical Protestant school called Westmont College in Santa Barbara. Uh, he's a convert. He converted after, and I'm a revert. I came back to the faith uh, somewhere around my senior year, although it was a slow uphill battle. <laughs> um, and then we moved to Massachusetts for a while, where he's from, and then came back to California, where we've been for the last 21 years, about um, Raising kids, and I started writing um, uh, just articles maybe five years ago, and then it turned into a collaboration with Carrie on Theology of Home One and Two, and then uh, my first solo book, which is the book where. Going to be discussing today, awake not woke.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, and one thing I want to tell you about is like I I I write as well, and I enjoy writing. I enjoy good writing, and just I mean, there are some of your sentences in there that I just loved. I think just I just want to affirm you on like your writing awesome. ability. You know, not just great ideas, but uh, for those who I hope everybody that listens to this will get a copy of the book. But I just really loved not only the content of it, but the way that you wrote it was really impressive. And so I just want to applaud you on that really quickly because it was awesome. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So first, I just want to give you some context. So what we do is Seeking Excellence. We have our seven pillars of excellence. And so I kind of started off on this journey. You know, the church talks about mind, body, and soul, and then kind of dove into like the Matthew Kelly adds in like the emotional pillar. He talks about the four parts of a person, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, And then I kind of like, as I was going in my life, I added like professional and financial because I started to make money. I was getting, you know, reviewed. I was in the army. I was an army officer for a while and and just you get peer, you get reviewed at your job and things like that, you know? So I was like, this seems like, like it's pretty important. Right. So I was like, professional pillar of excellence sounds right. But the social pillar, which is really what, you know, this kind of falls under, I started to see because of something that you mentioned in the podcast I listened to you on, a separate podcast with Jesse Romero is so many Catholics, so many people get drawn away from the faith because of these social movements that are happening. And I was like, this is too important. Like, this isn't just like some subset, you know, like we really do have like this responsibility to be well-formed in, you know, this kind of social sphere, if you will, you know, with all these movements and things that are happening. So um, I'm really curious for you. I think you already, you said that on that other podcast, that that was kind of one of your motivations to, to write the book was seeing all these other people kind of falling into it, but just kind of wanted to generally ask about that, like, what was kind of your motivation to... To go and, and actually write this,
2: yeah, no, it's a great question. I <clears throat> I think you 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 indicate the answer in uh, with the social pillar, but um, I have always been interested in how Christians play out their faith in the public, you know, in the social sphere, like what that what does that look like in, in as it interacts with politics, and is it merely political or is there something deeper happening behind it? Um, and I think what I started to realize was that you know there were so many things that would come up throughout my adult life, even, even starting with, you know, the, the, the gay marriage battles, you know, the um, Mm -hmm. maybe 10 or 10 years ago um, and thinking, you know, that it's, it's so hard. I'm such a personal person, people person. Like I really love my friends and I really, I re- always prided myself on being able to have deep friendships across party lines and across ideological lines and yeah. all these things. And so valuing those people, making them feel valued is really super important to me. Um, and, but they, they, it became to this point where I just kept thinking, you know, well, what is, what, what is the principle that we're altering here or that we're, um, what is the principle that we're doing away with? As we make these policy decisions, you know what, and what will that imply in the future? What what consequences will this have? What does this mean about what a human person is? What does this mean about what marriage is? And and how 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 do you balance that with this desire to be compassionate and to be inclusive to other people?
1: Right. Um,
2: and it seemed to me like it m- mattered far more than the way our, our national conversation was indicating. Um, and, and 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 it seems really important to me because I think that I've spent a lot of my life, as most people have, I bet you have too. Realizing how much ideas matter in your life personally, you know that if you believe sure. this one thing, then what does that mean? That in the way you have to conduct yourself, and the way you have to live your life, and what is that going what is that going to lead you to commit yourself to ten years down the road? You know, this old idea that ideas actually have consequences and that those consequences are incredibly important because the ideas are incredibly important. You know, you, right. and that implies that the ideas are incredibly important. And so with the woke movement, I just started writing about it a few years ago, realizing that it just was taking on this increasingly merciless tenor and um, a movement about social justice seemed utterly opposed in some ways to actual justice and and ultimately to mercy. Um, And that was really interesting to me. We were becoming a harsher culture. And I want to see, is this something that's really actually helping the people that it claims to want to help? much less um, you know helping us as a whole, as a society to grow together and you know to, to be a harmonious you know, so, um, society where friendships are enabled. Um, so that was really I, I think the more destruction I started seeing coming out of, out of it made me more motivated to dig into it further.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's so interesting, you know I, I, I've shared oftentimes on the podcast like I was a registered Democrat when I was 18 was like super pro-Obama in my teen years. I'm a convert to the faith and uh, have gradually become more and more conservative over the years. Um, But it really was a very gradual process. And I look back on the times when I like really bought in, especially to like the racial narrative, of like being a victim, you know what I mean? And that being like the biggest obstacle in my life and all this stuff. And I just saw somebody today, it was a Catholic in- Instagrammer, kind of influencer person um, who was talking about, you know, kind of like both feminism and racism and like blaming a lot of the negativity in our life on that, kind of degrading the pro-life movement in a sense and doing this, especially in this pivotal time of the pro-life movement. And it's just, it is so sad, you know, like I've I really... Almost shifted, and I think in a good way, makes to you know, the grace of God, shifted from like anger to somebody who's doing that to like really realizing and like really being compassionate and being like, you know, that's a like it's miserable, you know, yeah. and I've been there, and you've you've seen that with people.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's so that's a, that's huge. That's a huge recognition because there is a real, I think, being in a place of finding our identity in our victimhood leads pretty quickly to resentment and. In a posture of anger walking through the world.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I want to go, I don't know if this is a direct quote, but that's kind of a great segue into one of my favorite things that you said on the podcast uh, that I listened to earlier. Um, and I don't know if you mentioned this in the book or not specifically, but you talked about how, you know, the woke culture basically has the bad news and what the church offers is the good news. And I really love the way that you framed that. And I hadn't really thought about it in such a simple way before that basically the, the good news is you said, is that you are loved and therefore you ought to love. But the bad news is that you're hated and oppressed, and therefore you basically ought to, to hate and oppress.
2: And to spread, to raise people's consciousness. You know, that is, uh, you know, one of the points of being an activist is if there's a raising right. of consciousness that's steeped in Marxism, but that you're supposed to spread that bad news to other right. people, like wake them up to the fact that they're hated. You know, it really isn't a And that they ought to
1: hate. Yeah.
2: yeah, and that they ought to hate. Um, Contra gospel message, I think, flows directly from a different definition of the human person. Are we defined by the love of God or by the hatred of man? Um right. And from those two varying definitions will come two very different missions.
1: absolutely yeah. and and lifestyles and yeah, fulfillment and all kinds of different things. But yeah, so I think thinking about that, that's that's obviously a very boiled down version of it, but I think really encapsulates a lot, but it's very dark. you know, and so one thing I, I'm interested in, Because I I know from my own research, I wrote a lot about racism last year and and learning about those things and just generally trying to study up and and read these books like yours, you know, and and educate myself in a vast, you know, all these different kind of topics and issues and things like that. Like how difficult was it for you? You know, kind of similar to C.S. Lewis when he wrote the Screw Tape Letters, you know, like when he had to kind of take on the mind of the devil. Like I think that in a certain sense, when you research things like this and you obviously extensively read Karl Marx and, you know, all these different authors, just like Carrie Gress, you know, had to go back through all the feminists and things like that. Like how, how was that experience for you of really diving deep into these evil philosophies and ideologies?
2: Yeah, no, I'm, I think that the darkest, uh, part for me was writing chapter seven, which is the one about innocence and victimhood. I think I titled mm. it the crowd of the victim. Um, but that's when I really was, was researching how innocence is dominance, according to the movement, um, mm. Because innocence, you know, it's the whole thing with like why children have to go to transgender story hours at the libraries to they're supposed to be exposed to alternative lifestyles because their innocence of those lifestyles perpetuates Mm -hmm. the idea that 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 there is a norm. Of, of behavior it perpetuates the idea that that, that these alternative lifestyles are actually alternative <laughs> that they're not the norm yeah. the, defo- the default <clears throat> but in that in the course of writing that chapter which I, I found to be really rich because it's when sort of the spiritual underpinnings of all it all came really came together for me um but i did some research on abortion um about this with this uh, the church of satan and their, yeah. they have rituals you know and it was dark and I didn't, I didn't write extensively about it, but I really wanted to go there and just to, I understood, could wrap my mind around what, what their approach to all that was and how deeply demonic it was. And I felt, um, for, I think maybe for the first time in my life, actually just a, a real presence of something demonic. And I, I, spoke with my spiritual director about it and he was able to, you know, help me through it, but I, it was, I I think my poor, my poor, long suffering (laughs) husband, every night we would sit on the deck and I'd be like, and this is what I'm reading about today. And this is what I found. And he'd be like, okay, okay. That's pretty heavy. (laughs) Having someone to having uh, your spouse be able to process it all with you. Oh my goodness. I recommend that to anyone who's going to write a dark book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You (laughs) got to have the debrief, the debrief partner. It's so big.
2: It can be consuming. It can be, you know, it can be consuming. Oh my gosh. But the nice thing, the faith is like you know, is there such a lightness about it? You know that you can feel this total confidence, the face of something so dark and so evil. You know, the exorcists talk about this that you know you you unite yourself to Christ and that he's your he's your victor and he gives you all the protection and confidence that you need.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so good. You know, I've experienced that even just like if you listen to certain podcasts, right? So like I, I love Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh and. I still have to, like, I got to take a vacation every now and then, you know, I'm like, I I pray for those guys because I'm like, they're so mad every day. You yeah. know? Like, that can't be good for your heart health long-term.
2: Oh yeah. Well, that's the other flip side. It's just on a, on a more natural level. It is hard not to become, um, you know, we don't want to be fight ideology by becoming ideologues of another stripe right. where we're just purely political, you know, and tribal and just kind of raw rawing our guy and dunking on the lips and something that's never, I've always <laughs> been very aware of that temptation. And I feel it in myself and I, and I, 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 I disdain it. <laughs> you know, so I, yeah. I work, I try to work really hard to struggle against that temptation because it is a pull. There's a real pull there.
1: Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think it's just something that, you know, as I remember we had a, a priest friend of ours over here for dinner um, about two months ago or so. And he was just like, we were just talking about all these different things going on in society and all this stuff we were, you know, Ben Shapiro topics and all these things. And he was just like, yeah, I just try to stay away from a lot of that because he's like, I just have enough of a mess of my own life, you know, that he's like, I don't even try to venture into that. Which I think is you know a good point, especially when you get to the point where it is like affecting your mental health and like you are you know not being loving towards your neighbors or people who disagree with you and things like that. But what do you what is your kind of perspective on that? Like the focus on um, you know federal politics, the national movements, like all these different things that are happening versus like having your own affairs in order because it's a tough combination. You know, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about that. He's like clean your own room before you go out and criticize the world. But at the same time, like he goes and speaks on like these large wide scale issues. And I don't think we're at a point where we can just totally ignore those.
2: Right. No, that's actually a fantastic question. And one that I, I think about a lot, um, it, it's interesting because, it, um, you know, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn would say, you know, the, the, the biggest, the biggest, one of the biggest errors of the, of the ideologue is that he thinks that evil cuts through groups of people, whereas evil cuts through the hearts of every one of us. So we're all capable of malevolence. We're all capable of, of, of deep evil. And we're all capable of, you know, triumphant goodness. And, um, and, and that sort of, the Catholic, I, I, I think I've I've written a couple of articles about this, just that how the Catholic Church really is on a natural level such a, a buffer against ideology. Why? Because mm-hmm. so, for example, I've I've tried to go to Confession Weekly, you know, which I, I every week I hate. <laughs> and it's not even because there's you know necessarily all these huge, awful things, it's just because it's really humbling to tell a priest who is who you love and want, and you know, I'm you know, it's you know, I identify who I am and who I want him to like me and to be like, well, still struggling with this, <laughs> or so, right. you know, it's extremely humbling. But the Catholic Church n- n- sets you up on a path that's going to keep you always, as much as we want to get into the place of accusing of and finding evil outside of ourselves, we are constantly invited and prompted to see the darkness within ourselves and to struggle against yeah. it and to and to pick up our struggle every anew, you know, the next day and begin again. Um, and that opportunity I think is such um a deep and profound way to ward ourselves against that temptation of becoming just wrapped up in yeah kind of the the battle of the evil outside of ourselves you know the church is always and also family life i mean it, i always say family life or you know it's it's terrible and beautiful it's terrible because it, you 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 see your own faults you can't hide your faults you know you right. can't bifurcate yourself and but it's beautiful because you get to contend with your faults you get to improve Um, but I think that the plight of modern man and woman oftentimes today is a bifurcation where, you know, they have the person they're projecting out in the world. And then the person that they're kind of pretending they're not who is who they, their real selves, you know, um, I think we've become performers so quickly and easily. And it's a human temptation, but, um, I think that's all tied together in what you're talking about, and the best way, as you say, to fight against it is to really get your own house in order. As you know, as you, you, right. you said earlier, as Jordan Peterson would say, um, and oftentimes people are disappointed that message. Like, so I just need to pray more. It's like, well. Kind of. I mean, they're are, <laughs> right. are more practical solutions too. It's a but big part of it. <laughs> the the, the holier we become, the 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 more we die to ourselves, the more we you know conquer our own egos. You know, the more we're going to reflect light Christ in the world. The better our families are going to be. The better our friendships are going to be. It yeah. has exponential you know improvement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is so interesting. It's such a good point that you made there about the fact that our faith really does keep us grounded and like recognizing our own capability for evil and wrongdoing and sin and things like that in the world. And I think, uh, you know, uh, one part that, that made me think of in the book was the, uh, you talked about the, uh, one of the head, the head guys of the Nazis, uh, that kind of ran the concentration camps and really, you know, um, made all did just horrific things. And I forget which chapter it's in. It's kind of in like the last quarter of the book, I think, or like in the middle third, but, um, yeah, you talked about how, you know, somebody who was watching the trial of this guy, I can't remember what his name was, um, but basically that what she came to realize is that she was startled by how ordinary the man seemed, yeah. you know, and how much we think all the time that like evildoers, these horrific people are just so different from us, you know, right. like they're just so far away. And I think that as a Catholic, you would almost be more grounded to not be as surprised by that. You know, because you, if, if you are practicing Catholic and you are going to confession regularly and you have this high standard for yourself and you see the terrible things that you've been able to do, um, I think it does kind of open you up to that to a certain extent. But, uh, yeah, it's really powerful. And I think the other thing that you said that was really powerful in that, uh, that you pointed out that she said, was that he almost he had a very authentic inability to critically think.
2: Yeah, that was Hannah
1: Arendt, I think. Yeah. The oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yep. And so just like how powerful that is, you know, cause that's something that I, I have pointed out for the last several years and just, and have just been mind blown by people's inability to like comprehend any sort of philosophy and yeah. to really like rationalize and like think through issues. Cause that's all that really made me more conservative. That's all yeah. that made me more pro-life and more pro-traditional marriage and more pro all of these things. Right. was just like the ability to think. So yeah. What is kind of your just take on that? Like, how do you think the world has kind of started to deconstruct the ability to critically think?
2: Yeah, no, I I started in the beginning intro or for chapter one. I, to, I talk a little bit about the, the idea that, you know, the modern kind of banal phrase where people say it's better to be kind than right. You know, that, that yeah. phrase always rubs me so wrong. And I, and I think because, you know, well, obviously there's cases where, you know, you're not supposed to be pedantic scold or, you know, if someone says, do I look fat? You're not supposed to necessarily say the bullshit look huge,
1: yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, that,
2: but I think that that phrase is representative of this kind of banal truism that goes far beyond that sort of um, admonition, but rather is kind of just inculcating us into this idea that truth and love are, separate things. And that if you're focused on truth, you're ignoring the the deeper and more important task at hand, which is totally anathema to, you know, what truth and love actually are, right. They, they're not opposed to one another. In fact, um, truth without love is, is, is a lie. And love without truth is not really loving. You know? right. <laughs> or um, I think Pope Bendix said true love without truth is mere sentimentality, you mm. know, and then there's another great quote, cl- Flannery O'Connor says love, love without the cross is tend- uh, tenderness or something without Christ or tenderness without the truth leads to the gas chambers, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, anyway, but my, my point being that I think that, that that kind of instinct has led to a, a real um, relegating of critical thinking, uh, you know, off to something that is uh, uh, reduced, you know, and unimportant. I think that's kind of the pop, what the popular story that's happened is that we've you know right. even with like the you know the sec- issues of sexuality that whole thing um or any other issue I mean uh like we were talking about at the beginning the few it, it's always just really dr- driven me crazy to think like well what what is the principle behind what we're promoting you know and if we don't care about that right. then we're gonna we're gonna walk into a whole host of issues that we're not anticipating so we have to think about what our principles are um but I think the more academic thing that's the story that could be told is that you know this was just Part and partial of the Frankfurt School and the, neo, the neo-Marxist movement was to, to replace critical thinking with critical theory. Critical thinking is oriented yeah. towards truth and critical theories oriented towards power. And that got seeded all throughout the academic institution. So kids have just been weaned on this stuff. Um, and, I, and I really think it's prohibited a lot of, of depth of thought. Um, and now, and this is why you get sloganeering, right? I think that, that that's yeah. in that chapter, two is that it people is. tend to become sloganeer, like uh, r- r- hooked on slogans. Uh, because it masks the inability to think.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting today in today's world, how far so many slogans have gotten, you know, like things like uh, healthcare as a human right or abortion as healthcare and like how tied those two things can be without people. I mean, it's incredible to me how many pro-choice people there are in the world today who don't even really have an argument or philosophy or stance on whether or not it's a human life in the womb, right? Like the, the devil has done such a great job of getting us so far away from like the fundamental like premise question that like all the premises are almost assumed by so many people that it's just like, you hate women. If you're trying to, you know,
2: <laughs> an, an emotionally driven narrative and exactly. that emotionally driven narrative carries and masks the fact that there is no substance there.
1: Yeah exactly but i love i love what you said there and you mentioned this earlier about like where does it lead you know ben shapiro these guys talk a lot about like the fence you find a fence i think it's a chesterton quote originally where it's like you find a fence in an open field and it's like do we tear down the fence and and you have to have the fear at least or at least wonder what's on the other side you know what could this fence be protecting us from or keeping us you know safe or keeping us away from and uh one thing i think is interesting and kind of like the slippery slopes you mentioned like the same-sex marriage debate that was going on 10, 12, 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's so interesting to see how many different things. I read um, A Church in Crisis by Ralph Martin, and he talks about, I used to think that, you know, the the same-sex debate, when same-sex marriage was legalized, like that's what's led to a lot of the gender ideology and things like that. He pointed to, or no, it wasn't it wasn't Ralph Martin. It was uh, uh, It Is Right and Just by Scott Hahn. He put it all the way back to, like, no-fault divorce being, like, the kind of top of the slippery slope And I think that it's one of the challenges that we face. You know, uh, Jordan Peterson also talks about like you have uh, he says that when he started fighting back against mandatory pronoun usage that a lot of people said, well, this is kind of an arbitrary place because he said he would use a transgender person's pronouns if they asked him to. But he didn't think it should be mandated. And I'm interested to hear your opinion on this. Like he said that wherever you draw the line is almost always somewhat arbitrary because you you have to just kind of do it somewhere. But how do you keep it from going so far? And what do you think is the reason why so many people refuse to draw the line? Do you think it is just this kind of culture of niceness that we have? Or why do you think so many Catholics just continue to say, you know, uh, d- just to be, yeah, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to use transgender people should, you know, have bathrooms, and they should be able to use whatever restroom they want in schools and all these different things that are happening with wokeness. Like, why do you think people are so afraid to to draw that line somewhere
2: yeah uh, i i think i can answer in a couple different ways i'm just speculating um one i think is you know, the frog in the boiling pot of water syndrome where you know you yeah. just you know you're not i remember reading this i think i think it was e michael jones who i haven't read very deeply or broadly but he had an article out 15 years ago or something and he was saying if any, you know, when he was growing up, if MTV had come on his, to the screen, every father in his block would have take, picked up their TV and thrown it in the trash, you know. But that right. the, the culture just slow, you know, slow boils you into more and more, you know, until all of a sudden you're at the bacchanal. <laughs> but um, absolutely. But, but I also wonder if there is an element of because we have become so hyper political, which I think is also a point of a, an of ideology, is that you know. I, everything becomes political, political becomes the God. And so everything personal has to become political. And I think that really makes politics become encompassing something that it ought not, it cannot bear, you know, it be, tries yeah. to, the state begins to try to become a God in, in a way. Um, but then that, what does that do? As we become less religious, we become more political Our politics replace, we relocate our religion to our politics. Mm-hmm. And I think that people have a hard time drawing that line because once they've taken, they've, left let that let the line go and, you know, certain number of fronts, then they've de- steeped themselves more and more into this political alignment. And then at that point, it becomes so tribal, it's really hard to kind of question your whole tribe, um, you know, when you've given away so much ground. Um, But 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 I do think that being said that people are you know, I think the transgender movement in some ways is I see a lot of more liberal uh, family and friends who are questioning it in a way that they wouldn't have felt comfortable questioning gay marriage, for example. or even some aspects of the sexual revolution. I mean, I think that's interesting about no fault of force. Cause I really think this transgender movement is so connected to this, the sexual revolution. Just that idea that our bodies don't mean anything. So we can do, you know, if once we decide our bodies are meaningless and you know you might as well mutilate it. Right. Um, but, um, but I think that it's, I think this, uh, it is a grab uh, a progressive grab that is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. And I wonder if more lines will be, will be drawn now.
1: Yeah. If people will start to realize we might've gone too far. I think it is interesting, but it kind of goes back to that people's lack of ability to critically think. And I think a lack of ability to philosophize in any way, because I always say, you know, you can you can start to predict. We see the little hints of it now. If you like if you follow conservative news outlets of like pedophilia being kind of normalized and things like that. But I'm always like, how do you first, how do you make the distinction that men and women can get married and that or men and men can get two men can get married, they can adopt kids and then fight back at all against transgender ideology. And then if you allow transgender ideology to like, to go down younger and younger in age and the sexualization of children that's been going on, how do you, how does that not lead? Like my question to people all the time is how does that not lead to pedophilia? If a child can choose their gender at age three, four or five, why can they not give sexual consent at 12? You know, like it's, it's, it's a disgusting rationalization, you know, to like go that far. But if you say, if these are your premises where you say that this is okay, it's it's inevitable that we're going to get to that point, you know? So yeah, I mean, we hope, and I think that when, when children start getting more involved, it seems like that's what wakes people up, but
2: yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I hope so. But I, you know, and I think that's an excellent point that people, I think we need to see where there's a limiting principle to something in order to understand what it is. And I think people oftentimes say, Oh, you're just saying a slippery slope or you're just, or you're paranoid or something. But but we, if we, if we, as a society, uh, eradicate limiting principles about a thing, then uh, then by definition, it's going to become limitless. It's going to keep moving. You know, it's going to keep going.
1: Absolutely. So one thing I wanted to jump into. There's a few. I mean, you had some great quotes in the books. So I wanted to read some of your great sentences. But uh, one thing that I really, really loved was the way that you broke down. In I think it's here in part two when you talked about dogmas, and you talked about the three rolling woke dogmas. So I want to talk about those for a little bit, real quick. And so you said the first of the three is the primacy of group over the person. Second, The second one is an emphasis on will at the expense of reason or nature. The third is elevation of human power, rejection of a higher authority. So first, can you talk about how you think we started to kind of make that transition from group over a person and how especially here in the United States, it's almost impressive. You know what I mean? Like literally the entire point of America, right. Is like this, this elevation of the individual to be like the, the almost in a Catholic sense, almost like too high of, a uh, you know, authority figure or, or too um, idolize, I guess you could say, or prioritized, you know, over God in, in certain senses with like the full, like liberal view of America, um, like in classical liberalism, but, even so, like, how do you, how did, how did this kind of happen where wokeness really started to put group over individuals?
2: Yeah, no. Um, well, I think that that was a key tenant is this that introducing, especially children into a collectivist mindset, which is, I think we're seeing the flourishing of that happening with all the stuff happening in schools right now. But um yeah, I mean, it's a self-defying movement that kind of both makes the individual like a God and also a totally enslaved, right? <laughs> that's the yeah. uh, irony of it. Um, but I think it's you know so the, maybe the, the the easiest phrase would be identity politics is you know what this this first dogma is pointing to um Mary Eberstadt has a great book called Primal screams I think or I, I'm not sure of the name but um it's basically saying she connects it which i think is completely right on to the f- fact that we lost so much our prime primary identity as in, in family and that once that happens which was a real you know that was a deliberate you know um d- that, that was a deliberate social pathology that the the movement wants to introduce is to to, to destroy the fa- family family abolition has been a historical part of the woke movement from way before it was Called woke um right but the once you lose that kind of primary primary identity you're on search for any identity on offer you know i think about it like a kid who doesn't have anyone looking out for him or protecting him and is more susceptible to being pulled into a gang because he wants some semblance of a family even if it's a family that's built not on love but rather on threat or you know uh, transactional protection type of deal. It still feels like he has some place to belong, right. um, and I think identity politics really rose from that desire, that very human desire. Um, it gave, and it gave, gives, you, gives you a narrative, right? It gives you a story. I am part of this movement, um, and and it it was happening a long time alongside, and possibly in you know as a cause of a rise in a society-wide elevation of our victim status as being part of where we gain our moral stature. So the more we find that we can claim some sort of victim mantle, the more we have a platform from which we ought to be heard and from which people need to listen. And that really creates an incentive to find ways in which we've been harmed. Um, and if we can claim that in a group, then that gives us a certain amount of protection, it gives us a certain amount of gravitas, and it gives us a certain amount of, you know, um, elevation and it gives us a, something special and, about ourselves, you know? And none and right. of that is obviously to say that there are not groups that have, I'm from a, a biracial family, um, I, I, my mom grew up with a, t- a lot of racism, and I, I I understand that that is real, and that <clears throat> I, I have no way, you know. And I, I have to say this because I've sometimes had people say like, "Do you not think that racism is real?" I was like, "Of course I understand it's real. <laughs> I just didn't know I had to say that because every normal person believes it's real, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah.
2: Every reasonable person understands that. Um, so I want to make that ca- caveat. But there's a difference between understanding that it is real and that it is an evil. And saying that we therefore need to identify ourselves by that evil, right. in that you know, in, in that group,
1: yeah, and, and view everything through that lens, yeah, you know, which is is incredible, yeah, <laughs> it's just an incredible thing, you know. Like I'm so mind blown. It's one of the things that like I'm surprised isn't more um, awakening for people. You know, we stand right now when we're recording this, like two weeks maybe after the Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, verdict has come out and then you had the what i can't i don't know how to say the town in wisconsin charge yeah i think that's i think that's right where you had the 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 black man who drove through the um christmas parade and killed six people and it's just been incredible to me to watch videos of like powerful people lie and talk about kyle rittenhouse shooting black people which just objectively did not happen and then you have on the other side where like all the (laughs) news articles talk about an suv killed six people
2: this accident yeah
1: yeah you know meanwhile
2: he was speaking about killing white people yeah
1: like ranting about it and it's like it's it's just mind-blowing to me that like more people aren't like disturbed by that or more people can't see the differences in the way that things are reported it's just like yeah like, well, this, you...
2: is, this is what happens. Is that it's it it exposes the fact that it's not really about injustice. It's about su- furthering an, an ideology, right? You what stories play into the narrative? Those are the stories we're going to elevate. Any story that doesn't go along exactly. with the narrative, then we have to we have to diminish. It's gone. Um, you know, it's like when Kanye West he put on a Trump hat, and I think Tana Hesse Jones said, "You're no longer black." <laughs> <You know? Right.
1: laughs> you know. Yeah. Or
2: when uh, the well, the women's march in 2017 wouldn't let pro-life women have any official or uh, affiliation with the march because they were pro-life, and yeah. they thought, well, is this a women's march or is this an abortion march? You know, I thought this right. was a women's march, or you might as well. But it's about the ideology; it's not about supporting women.
1: Yep. No yeah. pro-life
2: women is supported by the ideology.
1: No. Uh, yeah. No conservative black man or woman is supported by it either. It really is interesting, and I think it's. It, it's a great way that that happens. I think is the, the strongest way, you know, you talk about critical theory and, um, you know, I've been learning more and, and have been studying for the last year, really more about critical race theory and just how much that has uh, just grown to dominate, you know, so much of society. And it's really, really sad to see. It's really interesting to me, too. I am interested, in maybe your perspective on this of like watching white people almost in a certain way, like self-sabotage. You know, like to see that the majority, I watch all these, I love seeing like the when when Daily Wire or different places will send people like out to the streets of New York to talk to people. And one really good one I watched recently was they were like interviewing people on uh, the obesity rates in inner cities, especially like in black communities and poor black communities. And every like white liberal that they asked said it was because of racism, it was because of all these things. <laughs> and all the black people were like, Well, they're eating bad food. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? they're <laughs> like, not exercising. Yeah. But it's like it's so incredible to me, like how uh, you know, and I, I think it goes back to the the push now of critical race theory to say that things like showing up on time, politeness, yeah. uh, you know, um Hard work, yeah, hard work, right? Accountability, are white—that's all white things. And it's interesting because you see that with the Waukesha driver, right? Like he's he's exempt because, like, black as a black man, like I don't even have control over the words that are coming out of my mouth right now, right? Like I can't even be held responsible for any of this because he couldn't you know, help
2: drive through the parade. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, he couldn't help it. Like that's why the car did it. You know, it's almost like this this crazy like level of racism that exists that people yeah. are just incredibly blind to.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of people are waking up to, I mean, along the same lines as that video you're talking about with a um, showing ID to vote, voter ID, you know, right. they did the same thing where white people were just like, well, you know, it's really racist. And then they went and interviewed a bunch of Black people and they're just like, I can get an ID. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they're, they're like, are, like,
2: are you-, you capable of getting a driver's license? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can. How insulting. Do you know where
1: the DMV is? Yeah. Do you know where the DMV is? And they're like, yeah, it's up on, you know, 23rd (laughs) street or whatever. Wild. It's so, I mean, the president of the United States literally said, I was so amazed by this when they were talking about the voter ID law and how racist it all was. And he said that, uh, you know, poor black and Hispanic people in the country, like rural blacks and Hispanics can't get their way to the DMV. I'm like, why can't it just be like poor rural people? Like, why right. are poor, like, rural white people better than black people <laughs> finding the DMV and using the Internet? You know what I mean? Like, why is yeah. it just them? It yeah. doesn't make any sense unless you literally are racist and you think that black people are, are more dumb and inferior to white people. That's the only way that you can. Well, make that, I racist. almost
2: think that that's how we have to start thinking about it. Calling it is like calling out CRT is racist. You know, I think we almost right. not not reverse racist. It's just racist, racist. Right.
1: You know? Yeah, it's really crazy, and just just kind of drawing on of history. You know, I I was listening to Ben debate somebody on uh, Bill Maher's show, and he was talking about he's like, I just don't think that white people who never owned slaves should, you know, have to pay black people who were never slaves. You know, like we don't necessarily owe each other anything, and you don't need to be held responsible uh, for the actions of your ancestors, you know, and, and thank God that we don't have to, you know, my ancestors, I know my grandfather and I've had all types of people in my family who have done terrible things, you know, and I've done terrible things myself. And I'm glad that my grandchildren won't be responsible for my bad mistakes, you know, but it's, it's just really, really wild to me how, yeah, just how much it's shifted, but really how much it's the white people who are both championing actual racism towards black people, but also rooting against themselves in a certain sense. Cause I'm like, if Kyle Rittenhouse gets convicted, I'm like, I, I told every white dude that I knew that day, you know, I'm like, you would have been in some serious trouble because you could have caught yourself in a bad situation someday and gone to prison for life. Yeah. You know, yeah. like if the well, justice system is just done for white white males, then that's a dangerous world to live in as a white man.
2: Right. And it's also just a, a, the most disempowering message you could give to someone, right? Like in, in no other context, when you're yes. training someone to be a leader or mentoring them or helping them to trans- uh, transcend their circumstances, the last thing, you, the first thing you message you want to give them is like, you actually can, you mm-hmm. can, you can take responsibility of your day. You can take responsibility of you. your circumstances. Maybe you've been given a raw deal, whatever, a bad hand, whatever, in whatever your circumstances are, everyone has in some way. Right. But, yeah. um, but the more you dwell on that, then the least less powerful you become, right. You become, yeah. <laughs> you become an agent of change. The more you believe that you can change.
1: Yeah. It's a literal Obama's original slogan you know the yes we can like he literally had this kind of air about him and even i even think of like i remember young jeezy like made a rap song about obama becoming president and like it was so they were like inspirational it was empowering you know what i mean like that's how it started and then his second term just took a a huge u-turn and he was just like i did this but none of the rest of you could make it (laughs) you know (laughs) there is just like this immense pride in these people you know when you have like the kamala harrisons of the world who are like black people and women and all this stuff like you just can't like none of this is possible for you and it's like if you did it why can't anybody else succeed right you know right it's really crazy but i want to talk about uh that's kind of a good lead in talking about racism to one of my favorite quotes that you had in here was from martin luther king and you talked about uh it's a quote from letter from a birmingham jail and he quotes in the in inside the quote saying how can you advocate breaking some laws while obeying others they basically, go on goes on to explain, you know, some laws are just, some laws are unjust. The just ones come from natural law and from God, um, and the other ones are man made. Um, and so I want to talk about that a little bit because I'm really interested in this. This has been like top of mind for me lately. We just reinstituted all the, uh, or the mask mandate and things like that here in Denver. And, uh, you know, e- uh, Emily was telling me about a priest in the diocese who apparently put out this letter um that said you know like as catholics were called to follow the laws and to obey the government and things like that and so therefore we should do this we should go go about and do this and you could apply the same logic i think to the vaccine you could apply it to a lot of things right um that some of which would go against catholic teaching and so what is your kind of perspective on that in regards to to some of the covid things or if um let's say we can address covid first like lockdowns or um vaccine mandates or mask mandates and then I also would love to talk about it in regards to like gender pronouns and things like that later mm-hmm. on.
2: Yeah, I am I think that I would love would have loved and in moving forward if there are uh, more mandates and lockdowns I my my hope is that the church will really lead people um to resist them. And I think that should be the church's role. There's, I mean, it seems to me like at the beginning we were all kind of confused, like what is this? And we didn't really have a handle on it, but I think it's become clear that it's been so affected by politics in po- the way the policy has been pulled out. I mean, the way that they ignore natural immunity I and mean, these are irrational. I think that men uh, w- and women, we really resist laws that go against reason, you know, that right. it's one of the, it's, it's so hard for me to, uh, it's so hard for me to swallow that, that type of thing, especially when I don't trust the fundamental entities that are leading us through this, they've proven themselves to be so deeply corrupt, you know? So it's not like I have this like beloved authority figure who I know to be this good virtuous person. And they're telling me something that doesn't make sense and I should obey it. Right. That, that in that case, yes, I should. Um, But these are deeply corrupt institutions that are giving us utterly irrational and, Imposition, like, impo- like imposing on our lives in ways that are, you know, it means not like saying that churches should close down. It's ridiculous. Saying the sacraments can't happen. Um, but telling you have to inject something in your, your child. I mean, this is, it goes, it goes so beyond the pale, I think, of the scope of their jurisdiction. Um, right. but, you know, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what I, I, I have not, you know, I haven't studied deeply, you know, what is the ethical response here, but. These are just my my thoughts off the cuff. So I advise everyone to talk to their spiritual director.
1: (laughs) Yeah, amen. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think, you know, one of the ways that I could get really pessimistic within the church world is uh, I really struggle with, I don't know if respecting is the right word, but obeying at certain times or just like, maybe just liking is the word, uh, certain bishops and even priests. You know, I, I think part of my difficulty is, um you know, just growing up when I did, I converted when I was 13 and so that was in 2006 and so I mean in the 2000s like the church the sex abuse scandal that was happening and then when I got into college is when like it broke out for the uh, Pennsylvania did the grand jury or the their, their big report came out um in Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from and so all of that came out and it was just like super difficult. And so like I kind of get to this point and, like how I felt with this priest is I'm like, dude, like you guys, if you want me to listen to you and like buy this, this BS, in my opinion, that you're trying to sell me on like obeying the government, then you need to, as my leader, show me that you're willing to disobey the government when you ought to. And it's really hard for me going from last year, exactly what you just said. And not even just last year. I mean, we're, we're coming up on two years of this, of where every single, almost every single Bishop and a majority of priests like obeyed the government, restricting people from the sacraments, restricting people, you know, from getting together from, you know, that allowed this increase in depression, anxiety, and all these things to happen also within the church, suicide rates and addiction and all these things that have happened. And it's like, if you're not going to stand up when you ought to, when I think it seems very clear that you should, how can you expect me to now want to follow you and listen to you to continue to obey them, you Mm -hmm. know?
2: Yeah, no, it's a real struggle. I mean, I was talking actually more about obeying civil authorities than our bishops, but um right, no, no, think, no. Yeah,
1: I think I think it, it, yeah, but I, I think that was kind of like my transition from it is yeah. is the bishops when they tell us to, I struggle to listen to them because of the fact that I saw them obeying the civil authorities when they shouldn't have. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't Part want to know with- what you said.
2: Archbishop Cordileone did some. He took some really strong, powerful, courageous dances, and um, and some others too. Which was, but then it's so heartening to see it, right? You almost it like, is. oh the father, leading me. This is so good."
1: It's awesome. I think yeah, it it's so- really good. But that's one of my struggles sometimes. Is like I'll hear of like I almost have this like <laughs> gut reaction if I don't know a bishop or cardinal's name at this point. I almost feel like. They probably don't stand up against anything because I'm like everyone, you know, Archbishop now in Kansas City when he did. I've heard of Cordelio, you know, his name a ton of times over the last two years. And it's like if they're not standing up against abortion, if they're not willing to speak out at all about, you know, communion, for example, to, to people like Nancy Pelosi and, and Joe Biden. And um, if they're not willing to speak out against like the mandates and restricting the sacraments. You, you almost like it just it, it can be so disheartening, I think, as a Catholic to watch so many just kind of cower in fear and go about their life. It's one of the things I have a lot of respect for Archbishop Aquila here in Denver has actually come out and said, you know, like I I realized over the last several years, like I haven't been bold enough. Mm -hmm. You know, he was like, I was just kind of going along and I thought I was doing the right thing. And he he admitted that he hasn't been bold enough. He's making a lot of changes in the diocese, which has been really cool, but yeah, it just, it can be so difficult. Yeah,
2: it can. We're doing something on theology poem for the past six months or so, where we pray for a particular Bishop by name every Mm -hmm. day in our, in our daily collection, our email, Um, just to, just to, because I think it was our, our idea of like, how can we change something that feels sort of discouraging into something that feels more hopeful. And I think that's, you know, praying for them, even by name can be such a good thing because I, we're there under such attack, you know, certainly the devil really wants to attack our, our bishops. Um, and, and the, and the, but you know, the, the divine institution and a human institution and everyone's under attack, we're under attack, everyone, you know, absolutely.
1: yeah, and I think it's 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 one of the easiest ways I think that you can see, uh, you know, in the bishops and priests a, a lot of times, the same way with a lot of uh, lay people, is I think there's just this overvaluing of our earthly life over our eternal life, you know, and not recognizing that, yes, like some people might hate you, yes, Pope Francis might get mad at you for what you said, or, you know, certain people might leave your parish or get upset, but it's like you have to, like, you you don't exchange, you know, goods here on earth and popularity here on earth for eternity you know and i think that that can kind of filter down through people which is kind of goes back to what we said earlier about people not being willing to draw the line and you can even see in the church how much we've lacked so much on things like divorce on talking about marriage and and different topics like that that you wouldn't have seen you know as much 100 200 years ago in the church and i think that it really has led to yeah the blurred lines for everybody and that just kind of seeps out into the world and the way that we interact with the world which is sad. You hate to see it. So, <laughs> but yeah, so let's talk about, uh, with that, talk about some of my biggest pessimism. How about, tell me about how you kind of feel about the future, future of the country, future of the church. Are you feeling optimistic? Are you pessimistic? I know some people think, you know, like we're about to have a huge change. I, I know there's certain people who think that we're, the tide's going to shift, but like, you yeah. kind of find yourself on that.
2: I'm actually a terrible prognosticator. I'm not, I, it's just not something that I, People ask me questions similar to that um, sometimes. And and I'm just not sure what to say because I could see it going either way. You know, I could see where the really dark road ahead of us because, and part of the problem is because the woke movement does not have an internal limiting principle. They They won't stop unless they are forced to stop. Um, you know, they and and part of that is just built into the philosophy. You know, the Hegel stuff, like that Hegel, mm-hmm. the 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 society is all in uh, one being that's in a process building it, creating itself until it reaches its utopian ideal state. And so we keep having to like revolutionize and improve and. Um, and slough off the past. This is part of the reason why they hate history, right? Is that you? you history is only a tool for the future. Um, I think I think of it as like a man who has killed his father and is cowering, if terrified of his son. You know that all of the judgment is going to come at the end of history. You know, and so you have to be on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. Well, this gives you a weird, crazy incentive to keep the progress machine going, keep revolutionizing, keep pushing the envelope until you've destroyed the envelope, right? Keep getting weirder until there's no longer men or women, but there's like, you know, we're all just kind of one amorphous, like watery, like fluid, nothing, um, amoeba anyway. So there's no, they're going to keep going is my point unless they they are converted or unless this movement is concluded, um, and, and resisted to a, a strong enough degree. So I could see where, they, where it gets really dark or i could see where you know we build up a whole new like army of saints and um there's a renaissance of um and vitality of for what real human things we rediscover a way, really human way to live and that we want that we don't want the the dystopian metaverse i don't know if you seen <laughs> that i saw that and I was like what fresh hell is this <laughs> 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 but um fact that, that, <laughs> that anyone would long for that and not see how dystopian that is, you know. How terrible it is, um, yeah. How terrible it is. And even you see signs of this, you know, like even how like knitting people and like making bone broth, like all these old domestic domestic crafts are coming back in style. I mean, yeah. um, it's a sign to me that people in some ways want a human way of life. Um, right. whether or not that's enough, you know, it's not certainly on its own. It's not enough, but it can be a seed that we can water and, you know, can remind people you're a human being, you're a right. woman, you're a man, you're made for something. You that's have a purpose. Good. You have something deeper, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, a hundred percent. I think that's really good. I, I try to take the same kind of perspective of like, you're hopeful that things will improve and change, but you're ready in case they don't, you know, <laughs> like definitely am not banking on it but what going back to a little bit more politically speaking, like, do you, are you somebody, do you have a lot of hope in like the Republican party? Are you somebody who hopes to see uh, DJT come back in 2024? Like, what do you think is going to be kind of the future of conservatism? In, yeah,
2: no, like- I think, I think that the old conservative establishment is probably pretty dead at this point. You know, I don't yeah. think that if we try to run another Mitt Romney or something, then we're idiots and we deserve to lose. You know yeah. like that kind of you know whatever um, type of politician <laughs> is kind of over. But um, I don't know. I I wound up really liking Trump in the second. You know, the first I did not vote for him the first time. I did vote for him enthusiastically the second time, just because yeah. I I saw more of what where he fit in the you know in this moment and and how important that that was, regardless of his personal um, lacking. Um, but whether or not I want him to come back, I don't know. I just want someone that is going to be kind of have all the, the, ver- the virtues he had, maybe without the vices, you know, maybe Ron DeSantis yeah. or, um, but I, th- I, I think that we have a lot of momentum. You know, I, 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 I guess my, my personal biggest concern is whether or not the election will be stolen <laughs> <You
1: know>? Yeah.
2: <laughs> because there, I don't know what happened in this last election, but there's certainly, I don't think it's crazy to think that they're there's cheating that happens. And, um, I, I I think that there is such a powerful movement that wants to remain with the elite culture that is in place. And that is uh, oftentimes a bipartisan elite group, you know? Um, and, and I think it's really powerful. And so I, I I just don't know if they're just going to let another Trump type candidate win. I don't know. I mean, It's it's certainly I think if Trump ran against Biden today, he would he would kill him, you know, right. He would wax it. There'd be no contest. You know, no. Who's enthusiastic about Joe Biden? Yeah. And even that feels like part of the the power flex of the left is that everyone knows that he's a horrible president. Everyone knows that he's a puppet. You know, like no one really thinks that he's running the country. But we're all supposed to play this game like, okay he's our president. You know, like he's running the country. He's making decisions. You know, who's actually making these decisions? I (laughs) mean, right. (laughs) Oh, the whole thing's
1: so bizarre. Yeah, who's behind it all? It is really interesting. Yeah, I'm a huge Ron DeSantis guy. I don't know if he should run in 24 or the next time or whatever, but I hope that he does someday because I'd love for him to be the president of our country. But I think yeah. it is so good, you know? And I think it's something I I would also like to get your perspective on is like, I, I kind of draw a distinction between uh, being Republican and conservative. And I think that that has to happen now, especially because so many like, Uh, libertarians or just really like classical liberals have like drifted over you look at like somebody like dave rubin for example who by i mean he's married to a man you know like i wouldn't call it conservative where you're trying to conserve you know judeo-christian values and like some of the fundamental things of the united states of america um but now they're kind of like in the camp of like republicans so how do you kind of distinguish yourself or how do you kind of navigate that as well I no, I'm,
2: I, I, I lean towards what you're saying. I mean, I think that we have to become people who who are aligned with the people who understand what's at stake. And that's going to include people who are not who are, you know, don't have our same religious beliefs all the time or don't maybe don't, you know, don't have the same beliefs about what marriage is. Um, but I think that the stakes are kind of further than that at this point. And we have to align right. and and draw link arms with people who are going to who see what what's at stake and are willing to fight it.
1: Yeah. And the great thing I think about most of those people who do end up coming, you know, who who the left when the left leaves people, which they inevitably do, because as you said, they're going to keep going, they keep getting wilder, uh, is that most of the people who stay and like end up being either like center or, you know, becoming more conservative or become Republicans, uh, they are open to dialogue. And so like they're open, to like discussing things, you know, there's not like the same kind of cancel culture, safe spaces we almost can return to that. And that's, that I think is a beautiful thing. If we can fight against woke ideology and then kind of have a conversation amongst ourselves of like, what is best? Like, what should we be doing? You know, I think is really important, but I do, do you, do you ever share or kind of get concerned about like the, the right and like the conservative movement almost being like hijacked in certain ways by people who are kind of like very anti-conservative, but identify as Republican?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's happened a lot, you know, <laughs> that yeah. it gets hijacked, you know, and that's, and that seems like, you know, and it, uh, other people have said this, I didn't start this, but that the, the new battle lines is no longer a Republican or Democrat. It's elite, you know, it's ruler, our elite ruling class and uh, like a more of a populist movement. Um, and like you said, I'm, it's, it's really attractive to me, the idea that, you know, when like the Dave Rubens and, you know, there, you could name, uh, you say uh, a lot of, a lot of those, um, kind of more classically liberal people who come to the right or come to the, you know, the, this cause. um And it's so refreshing because you really can have actual discussions, you know? And yeah. I think that there, that's been the, and, and maybe that's what unites us is a willingness to be classical liberals, a willingness to actually be like, we actually want to have discussions and not be personally offended if we don't agree on every single thing, but also understand that our ability to disagree is one of the things that we're trying to preserve. And one of the things that this other side is trying to actually destroy, um, that I can't ask questions anymore, you know, is a problem that we (laughs) tend to self-censor ourselves. These are problems. And we do this socially, you know, like it's not even just like the law saying you can't say him or, or say certain pronouns. It's now just like even, um, my reputation will be at stake or I'll lose friendships or I might lose my job. You know, um, these are the beginnings of totalitarian regimes and that is so dangerous. And I think that that's, what's so fun about the new conservative movement that's that's um, bubbling up is that they hate that. And we just want (laughs) to talk and be able to have discussion. And that's a great thing.
1: It is. It's so good. And it's really, it's really crazy that we're still seeing all that happen and people being okay with that with like the most, one of the most educated, you know, generations of all time, or at least the most, we have so much access to information and we can like see the documentation. We still have, you know, World War II veterans with us who like fought against this type of tyranny. And still, you know, we see it kind of coming back around. I mean, it hasn't even been that that long since the Soviet Union, you know, like was dismembered, like, and still we're kind of just, just diving right back into it.
2: Yeah. And think about how vital that is. You know I mean how, how alive that energy is. You know what I mean? Like yes. the new movement is going to be, there's so much life and energy around it. People are excited. They're free. They're free because they're not afraid of their being exposed as being, as being a lie, right? Like that's a fun thing right. about when you're oriented towards the truth, you, well, you're not afraid of things anymore, right? Because if yeah. you're, you're going to get punished for saying the truth, if you're going to be scolded, if you're going to be wrong and have to reroute and rethink rework your thinking, because maybe you were off somehow, that's all on the table and you're all you're open to that because you just want to you're oriented towards the truth if you're oriented towards ideology you're constantly afraid you're constantly afraid of being exposed you're constantly defensive you have to silence people you have to coerce it's a really stultifying way to be and i think that juxtaposition of this kind of stultifying ideological way of being versus this like really alive kind of vibrant way of being is going to become starker and starker
1: yeah absolutely yeah, so it's, it's so awesome. It is very exciting. It's obviously very nerve wracking. You know, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. But you know, I think that it is such a gift that we have our faith, um, that that really steadies us. You know, and like the Holy Spirit. And, and I think when you do live by the truth, yeah, you don't have anything to be afraid of. You know, and being, yeah. I think one of the final fears that I think our faith really eliminates in our lives is that fear of death. And when you can yeah. get past that, and you truly do believe in the afterlife, you believe in heaven, you believe, you know, in the grace of God, you believe in the sacraments then I think that, yeah, what is what is there to be really concerned about? Um, yeah. Obviously, you can still have righteous anger towards the things that are happening towards our children and towards people who are being brainwashed with this negativity and evil philosophy, but um, it is still beautiful at the end of the day to be able to rest and go to mass and go to confession and, you know, and do these things together. And um, yeah, it's really cool. So hopefully we can leave it there on an <laughs> optimistic yeah. note for Love most it. people. Love it. I've been talking about some negative things today, but awesome. Thank you so much, Noel. I have, like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed the book for a number of reasons. I love the content that you had in there. I'm a huge lover of like uh, just the kind of high level strategy. I think it's kind of my love of like war strategy and things for my infantry days, but uh, just love the kind of higher philosophical strategy and kind of seeing where the roots of those ideas and things came from. So really appreciate the way you broke that down, but also Again, just love the way that you wrote. I think you're a great writer um, on top of being a great thinker. Um, and those two really go hand in hand uh, and, and make for some great content. So thank you for sharing this with us. Um, and thank you so much for joining me today to talk about it all.
2: Well, thank you. It's been a true honor. And this has been a super fun, freewheeling and just joyful conversation. So I loved every second of it. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. we we'll hope to have you again someday. Someday we'll do one with you and Carrie. Maybe Emily can interview you about that. And Emily
2: too. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to talk to her.
1: Have a good day. All right. Thank you.